All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan, and welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Teresa Lindsay. Teresa is the CEO of Channel Products, a privately held Cleveland-based manufacturer of component systems and technologies for the gas appliance industry and beyond. Recently, she's launched two new divisions of Channel, Spotted Yak, an engineering design firm, and Haunt Door Life, an online retail entity offering high-end curated outdoor living products. Channel has manufacturing facilities in both the United States and China and a distribution center in Europe. Under her leadership, the company's revenue has grown by over 100%. Profitability has grown by over 1,000%. The overall employee base has tripled, and she has built a culture based on high levels of both individual and corporate performance, as well as charitable service. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Well, that is quite a background, and I'm so excited to hear kind of your journey as far as what, how you got to where you're at, and then we're going to talk to about the culture that you created. So share with us a little bit about your background. Yeah, well, thank you so much. You know, I um, had a different life, a unique life, uh, somewhat disadvantaged by comparison to others, kind of grew up in a world that I didn't have an emphasis on career or education, uh, quite frankly. And so I sort of had to navigate my way through all of that into adulthood, took a number of different paths. There are a lot of splits in the road in that journey, but I, I finally ended up in manufacturing several years ago. And from there, Going from General Motors into Hawk Corporation, which was a publicly held friction manufacturer. And then after that, uh, with the private equity firm who owned Hawk and who actually owns Channel, through that, ended up at Channel. And the way I really got here is kind of unique. We purchased Channel. I was with the private equity firm. We purchased the company and I came in for about six months to help them operationally. Let's see how we can improve things. Let's improve morale. Let's Let's really dig in to the meat of the company. We felt like it had good bones and let's see what we can really accomplish. And during that time, really discovered that because it was, it was a local company and we were busy on due diligence with a number of other companies, we missed some things. And so it ended up being not exactly what we thought we were getting when we purchased it. Let me just say it that way. Uh, what ended up happening was there was a, an executive decision made by the private equity firm, the ownership that they were going to replace the president. And I was in that meeting, sitting there with the owners and I just felt it well up inside of me. And I just said, give it to me, I can do it. I can run this, I can fix it. And I can really make that happen. And so that was my goodness, nine plus years ago. And uh, so they took a chance on me and they gave me a shot. They had no reason to do that or to believe that Uh, that I could actually do anything I was saying that I could do, but they did and uh, they believed in me and here we are today. So that's sort of my journey here to channel products and it's been a fun ride. 
with a lot of intricacies to it and a lot to overcome and a lot to learn, as you can imagine. Many, many, many moments were growing moments for me, first times, but here we are. And so again, it's been fun and I'm grateful. I surrounded myself with people far better than me and that really facilitated the climb. So when you're looking at the, the first days of Channel nine years ago, and you don't have to go into the details as far as what you thought you were getting but didn't, but kind of share with us the journey as far as the culture, the way it was, and some of the things that you saw as an outsider coming in that, oh, I, I can fix that and what happened with the employees? How did you finally get them to buy in? Because we know this whole process takes time. It of doesn't course. happen overnight. From that day one, brand spanking new off the street to what you've created. First of all, I would say that the, we're still on the journey, right? I mean, because culture is an ever-evolving thing. The word culture is really thrown around so lightly these days. Everybody uses it. We use it all the time. To me, there's so much more than just the buzzword culture that really goes on in an organization. So when I first stepped in, uh, unfortunately, it was a culture of fear, intimidation, a lot of silos, a, a lot of breakdown. I would say kind of I don't want to say infighting is strong, but dissension, if you will, it was difficult. Culture really mirrored the leadership and the business really mirrored all of that. Uh, it was really walking into what through one's lens, one lens would be a great challenge and another lens uh, would be a tremendous opportunity because there's really no place to go but up and to heal and to restore. And so we started to put into place very specific things. The very first thing I did as the new president at the time, and now CEO, but the very first thing I did was I stepped in and I had scheduled a meeting with every single employee, all of them. And I, I called it school the prez. And I sat down with each individual. I had a list of, I, I believe it was five questions at the time. And, and I asked them all the same questions. I took a few minutes to get to know them personally. Tell me about your life, your family, where do you come from? And then I asked them very specific questions. And one of them was, we snap a finger and you're me. You're now the president of channel products. What's the very first thing that you change? What's the first thing that, that, that you think would have the greatest impact in making a difference here? And what are you afraid of, right? What are, what are you really afraid of here? Having those conversations really started to lay the groundwork for some much needed change. And from there, really went to work facilitating a number of different things. One of the early things that I did was, and of course we still do these, but they were 360 degree peer reviews. I did them a, a bit different rather than doing a survey, having people fill out opinions and all of that. I really did it. I listed, it was very simple, listed every employee's name, A, B, C, D, or F next to their name, and then yes or no. And I handed that list out to every single employee. And I said, I want you to go through and we had in a prior meeting defined all of the attributes of an A player. And I made sure that it was their definition, not mine. What is your definition? And here's what's interesting about culture. Back then, everybody was listing A player attributes because it was almost like a finger pointing exercise. Like, oh, communication is definitely an A player while they're looking over here at Sally, who is not good at communication, right? So it was right. almost like that. Everybody was just frustrated and they're trying to get it all out. So we defined, I think there were 34, 36 attributes. 
then I rolled out the review, the 360 degree review, and it was for them to check, go down each name. Are they an A player, B, C, D, or F? And then yes or no, if you started your own company today, would you hire them? Wow. And so it was very simple, very clean. And then a small comment section that you couldn't actually offer opinion or thought or complain. But what you could do is if you mark them anything less than an A player, B or below, you could list up to three of those attributes that we had defined as opportunity for them to work on. So no opportunity to shred somebody. I don't want to hear your complaining, but let's really dig in. And so then I took the results for each individual, put their name down, A, B, C, D, F, yes or no, and then just put a number in. You got seven A's, 20 B's, three F, you know, that type of thing. As it stands, you know, only two people would hire you and the rest would not. And I put those in an envelope, sealed them and passed them out at the next meeting, which we at the time called one team meetings. Now they're called channel chats. And then the real facilitation began because as you can imagine, as people opened those envelopes and pulled that out and they saw that they're sitting in a room full of peers and of those peers, uh, there were a lot of opinions about how they were not necessarily an A player. And there were only just a couple of people that were really viewed through the lens of being very strong A players. And so that was the starting point. And so from then it was about facilitating, okay, we are going to create a standard high in the company for performance. We make it today, we make it very difficult to get into our company intentionally. It's by design, but we're going to set the standard really, really high. And then we're going to watch the fallout, right? Some people are going to make it, some people aren't. And for those of you who aren't going to make it, I'm going to help you transition into something that's a really great fit for you. We're going to do this together because I care about you and I want the best for you and your families, but this just might not be the right place for you going forward. And that was really the beginning of it all. And since then, we've implemented a number of very strong culture things that we do and we maintain that have evolved over the years into a very mature, very rich and robust culture. And for the people who had the, the three things that made them not an A player to stick out, did, was there something that they had some recourse then that you offered them some training, some guidance, support? Because I'm assuming that that meeting was probably filled with a lot of shock and hurt and yeah. all the other emotions that go along with that when you're expecting that I am all that in a bag of chips and you find out, well, maybe not. That's right. I will say that I had a revolving door after that of people in tears, people angry, other people took a position of indifference, you know, whatever, I don't care. And because they couldn't handle the results. But yes, what we did was the only person who saw results were the staff members who had a specific group of people that reported to them. So they didn't get to see everybody's results. But if they had, say, 10 direct reports, they got the results of those 10 direct reports so that they then could help coach and mentor them through that process and help them develop the skills uh, where the gaps were. It sounds like, again, I'm, I'm going back to having that first conversation right off the bat before you've really even built that level of trust to have that in-depth of a conversation. What was that process like as far as 
they, they were coming from con command and control and this fear environment. And here's this new person coming in, know what's really going to happen. So what were some of the steps that you took to, to build that trust, to be able to have those difficult conversations? Yeah, so one of my, my, not one of my very first meeting with them when the ownership introduced me to the workforce, I actually said to them, look, there's only one thing that really matters here, and that's trust. I am going to trust you to show up every single day and give 120% of yourselves, right? That's my expectation. I'm going to trust you to show up here and give everything you have to being loyal, supportive to our future, to our growth, to our culture, to what we have going on. In return, you have to trust me to make the very best decisions for you and for this company. And along that journey, and I was very candid with them, along that journey, there are going to be some difficult things that we encounter together. And some of it's going to feel personal, but it's not. This is about us building a company, which is what we're all here to do. Everybody collects a paycheck here to do just that. And so it's about us building a company, but the way we're going to build the company is by building the culture. I was very clear with them that the only way to get to where we going, or the direction we were going was that we had to blow up the culture and then reassemble it piece by piece. Those initial days, those initial three months, I really did that. I talked to them a lot about vulnerability. This is going to hurt. We're going to be vulnerable with one another. I was very vulnerable with them. I was also very transparent with them. It's one of my key beliefs as a leader. I do not believe, uh, two things. First of all, I believe in leading people and managing process. We never manage people here. I don't ever let my team say, oh, I manage them, or that's not true. We lead, nobody wants to be managed. They want to be led. So we lead people, manage process. And then the second element to that was real stripped down vulnerability so that we could rebuild that trust. And so much so that I put myself out there a lot of times and allowed for open comment and feedback on me personally. And I would intentionally do that so they could see me being very, very vulnerable. And the one thing that I believe in with that is transparency. And so all along in my years of leadership here at Channel, I am hyper transparent with the people here. The only thing we don't share are people's salaries. We share everything else. I, we don't break HIPAA laws, but I mean, we share everything right. else, whether it's the company performance. If I'm making a tough decision, like I build a facility in China and I knew that I was going to have to change my workforce here as a result of that and downsize, I started telling them six months in advance, six months. I started giving them a heads up. Look, we're going to keep this many people and I want all of you here. So I need you to, to show me that you want to be here. And here are the requirements. Here are the standards for that. This is how we're going to make decisions about who stays and who does not. And this is not personal. It's business. But I love all of you as if it is personal. And so we're going to walk through this together. And I met with them almost, well, more than once a month. I'd say every three weeks I met with the entire workforce, just reminding them this is what we're doing. This is the decision we're making. And the interesting thing about that is when it came time to sit down and have those one-on-one -on -one meetings with people to let them know who was coming with us to our new headquarters, because simultaneously we were building a new headquarters and who was coming to the new headquarters, who would not no longer be joining us on our journey as a company. We brought in a firm to help us transition folks. Uh, we gave them all the support in the world, the softest landing you could imagine. We gave them a heads up 60 to 90 days in advance. So mm -hmm. we had those meetings 60 to 90 days in advance of them actually having to 
have a replacement in job. The firm that we worked with actually sat me down afterward and said, we've been doing this for over 30 years. Never in our history have we had people who have just been told they were exiting the company say through tears, I am going to miss Teresa and this company. This is this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I'm so sad I'm not going forward with them, but I don't blame her. I could have done more. I should have done more. That's really, when you talk about transparency and culture, and we have a very low churn rate, less than 2 3% of our people leave on their own. I mean, if we're exiting someone, it's a different story, but most people come and they plant themselves, and it's for reasons just like that. Uh, and that blowing up of the culture and rebuilding it is what really has um, made us what we are. So what's your favorite part of your culture right now out of all the good things that you've done? Oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> it's it's hard for me to maybe narrow it down to one because there's so much that I love about channel products and our people, who we are. I would say that everybody here is really excited and focused and loyal about being a part of something bigger than themselves. And that's really important to me. And it extends throughout our organization. It permeates in a lot of different ways and it manifests itself in a lot of different ways in our culture. And we also, on the backside of that, I would say we, we really go above and beyond for our employees. We do really unique things. We are a unique culture. We have all the normal stuff, a game room and a, a gym in our building. We have all of that. We're very unique in the way we approach our people. Uh, they have uh, they, can, they have the option to work four tens and take Fridays off. We give them paid days off to volunteer every year. We have a program where they, all year long they get chips, poker chips, and they exchange them for swag and gift certificates and tickets and airline stuff. We have a lot of different events throughout the year. We do charitable things throughout the year. And the idea that our people not only appreciate all of that, but they're fiercely loyal to just the vision of the company and making it successful is really important to me. And when I say we support people on the back end, you know, we've had a number of people here who have been diagnosed with unfortunately life-threatening illnesses. And, you know, that happens when you have a large, uh, group of people. We just have this policy that I believe we reap what we sow as an organization. So I refuse. I had one associate who literally did not show up to work for over a year because he was struggling with cancer and unfortunately passed away. But I never took him off of our payroll, kept him on our payroll so that he could continue to get benefits, so that we could continue to take care of him, even though he was not contributing from, from an actual business standpoint. We've done that a number of times here for folks. And I really believe that when you're good to people and it goes beyond, we had a party for them and gave them pizza. When you're genuinely good to people and they show up and they see those examples and they show up every single day knowing, wow, if I were in that situation, this is how they would treat me. This is what I can expect from Teresa and the organization. That goes a long way to creating loyalty and fostering teamwork and camaraderie and stuff. So Wow. And when you give your employees time off to do volunteer work, what does that look like? We have our channel cares 
portion of our organization. And we do some pretty cool uh, philanthropic stuff. COVID, obviously, last year was a bit challenging with those things. But we've done things. The one example that I give because everybody loves it and other people have emulated it. What we did one year was we took the entire company, divided it up into four. And this goes to that volunteerism. We divided it up into four teams, surprised them. They showed up that day and we said, surprise, this is what we're doing today. And we sent them out on limo buses. Each team had a limo bus and $250. We bought them matching t-shirts for their teams and everything. It was a competition for channel chips. I mentioned our Elevate program with the channel chips. They had to go out into the surrounding community. They had three hours to do as many random acts of kindness that they could do. And so these four limo buses, they just had to figure it out as a team and tell the driver where they wanted to go right? Where do they go and what are they going to do? And it was spur of the moment. And we, there were categories like who can do the most random acts of kindness, who does the coolest, most unique thing, who can bring back the most money, right? Who can just do genuine random acts of kindness without spending money. And so we had all these categories for winning. And that day they went out and did over in three hours, we did over 100 random acts of kindness. Wow. So everything from taking uh, coloring books and crayons to the children's unit at the hospital. They um, took stuff to the fire department and the police department. They took bought Gatorade and took it to construction workers in the street. We did it in, a, in September. They uh, stopped and paid for gas for people. They went to a drugstore to a woman standing in line and paid for her, her prescription that day, another team. And so they had to take a picture of everything that they did okay. to verify and text it back to us. So while they were out doing this, we were keeping track kind of back at the home base. And then like one team, there's a picture of the team around a woman in a dental chair and uh, they paid her copay that day. So just really unique things. And so that really extends over into the volunteer days. We allow our people to volunteer any place they want. There is a form they have to fill out and have signed. Um, it's not a, it's not a day on the boat. They actually have to go and give of themselves. We pay them to do that. And a lot of times they'll get together as a, as a, a department or different people in the organization will pull together. We did shut down one entire day and we paid all of our employees to go and work at the Cleveland Food Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just do a number of things like that as our, part of our philanthropic arm. We try to be unique rather than just cutting a check because I feel like anybody can do that. But we try to approach it with uh, maybe some more teeth and grit. Right. So what are some of the things that are keeping you up at night? You know, I I think really thinking of how to leverage this wave um, that we're on. As a company, I almost feel guilty saying this in the midst of of the challenges of a pandemic, but much is going well. I mean, our business had a record-breaking year in 2020. January was an all-time record-breaking month. Q1 is shaping up very nicely. Employees are engaged and excited about our future. Shareholders are happy. I think what's keeping me up is how to keep that momentum growing for exponential future growth. How do we harness this window of time to create lasting and sustainable upward trends and really increase the company value, which in my mind, then always we're very generous to our employees with incentive compensation and other things. And to me, the the better we do, the harder we work at building the company, the better we can be for our employees. The truth is my personal goal is to sleep well um, because I rise very early to focus on the elements that make me a better person for myself and my relationships. I do meditation, I have affirmations and I have a vision board and I read and I pray and I get a good workout in every morning. 
And so I really try to do that because I think it makes me a better leader here at Channel. And if I show up clear-headed and focused, you know, we can really move the needle here. Wonderful. From a networking standpoint, what is it that you would like to learn from other manufacturing colleagues and what insights or parts of your expertise would you be willing to share with others? As far as what I would be looking for, I, you know, I think we can all benefit from more awareness of what's happening in the global economy, both now and anticipated in the future. You know, in the world of manufacturing has experienced some very high highs and some very low lows over the last couple of decades. Unfortunately, a lot of companies have found themselves on the side of the low lows uh, far too often. And a lot of that has to do with the global economy. Where, is, where are products being manufactured in the world? Um, unfortunately, a lot of products have left the US and they're manufactured in China or India, or other parts of Asia, uh, in Mexico, Canada. And so the impact that that has and what does the global economy look like Companies like ourselves and others have found it impossible to compete without manufacturing in those locations. And so how do we find that balance in all of it? You know, we are focused on keeping manufacturing in the U.S. as well. So we have manufacturing here as well as China, and we're getting ready to open a facility in Mexico, trying to understand all of that. And how do we anticipate the future? Also, idea sharing from those who've pivoted their companies. Man, covid created a year where companies really had to pivot or die. Unfortunately, I know a number of companies that just have really struggled to weather the storm and some that didn't weather it. And so how, for those companies who pivoted and came out successful, not just during COVID, but in other times, where that pivot caused them to reach entirely new levels, right? That type of information, how did they pivot? What did that look like? What did they have to uh, do to make that happen, because some of it required some pretty radical change by manufacturing leaders. And then as far as support, we always do better together. And I think that any way we can come together through shared experience, some of what you're doing here, having manufacturing leaders share their, how do they build culture and sustain culture? Building it isn't nearly as hard as sustaining it because people, yeah, I, it's hedonic adaptation, People, right. you know, set a level of expectation. And once they reach that, now they're bored, right? Now it's got to be more and more and more. And culture is very much like that. You know, the days of the sliding boards and the, you know, all of the fluff, all of that's great, but it's sort of had its day. You know, it's always nice to show up and work at a company that has all of that to offer. But I think there's an entire generation of people coming up who want more. They want substance. They're kind of beyond that. I think we all thought that we had to put those things into recruit that younger generation, and they've had their taste of it and they've had their fill of it. And now it's about substance. They're more interested in, can I work remotely? Can I balance my life better? Uh, What are you, what am I really getting out of this relationship? And so I think for manufacturing leaders an exchange of those ideas and understanding what that looks like and how to pivot to really a new landscape of manufacturing going forward, because it is changing. AI is changing it. The global economy is changing it. The global tensions are changing it. And so how do manufacturing leaders navigate all of that and come out on top? Wow, you have given us so many great ideas. If you were to share one 
idea, your your best tip for somebody listening today as far as one change that they could make with their culture, what would that be? I would say get yourself right first. And what I mean by that is if you yourself are focused on being whole, smarter, better, if you're focused on investing in yourself, and I don't mean uh, material things, and I, I mean more holistically investing into yourself. If you do that, people sense that. They feel that. With that comes vision and energy and um, the ability. It gives you some foresight and some insight. And people notice that. And they feel it around you. And so if I were to say, there's a lot you can do. We check a lot of boxes as a culture and, and things that we do. I think it's more about being. And I think it starts with the leader of an organization. And if they can focus on being that, um, there, you know, there's a, the cliche, you know, be the change you want to see. But the reality is it's, it's not necessarily trying to become something you want out here, but become the best version of yourself in here. And when you do that, I think that a lot flows out of that. And people can buy into that. And it's contagious. And if you can get just a few people on board with you, working on themselves, growing themselves, it pays off in big dividends, way more than any event that you can do or any a program you can implement. Well, Teresa, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show with me today. Thank you so much for your time and all of your insight that you shared with us. Thank you, Lisa. It's been my pleasure. Uh, I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network podcast. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, do me a favor. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Also, feel free to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow the network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either go to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow this network, the stronger and deeper community we will have. I appreciate you. Thank you.